Thank you, worship team. Welcome to New Life Fellowship. My name is Greg Howe. I'm on the teaching team here at the church, and so glad to have you here. I know many of you are eager to leave as soon as possible to get to other festivities during the day, so we're going to attempt to honor your time and honor God all at the same time. If you need a Bible, um, raise your hand, and our ushers would be happy to bring one over to you. So feel to raise them up, and a couple of the ushers with Bibles will be circulating around. Um, let me pray for us as they do that. Lord God, we pray, um, like that song we just heard suggests, that you would encounter us. Um, and whether it's quietly today, like the snow, which will begin later this evening, um, or in a tremendous way that completely alters life as we know it, um, we beg you and we need you. Speak to us. Reveal yourself to us. Transform us so that we become the people that you desire us to be, the church that you desire us to be, for the sake of the world that is not as you intend it to be today. May we experience your mercy and your presence, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in the middle of a series here at New Life on prayer, cultivating a life with God. And um, Rich kicked off the series helping us think about those three words, knock, ask, and seek, and how God invites us um, to participate with him. Uh, Pete helped us last week think a little bit about the wedding at Cana and um, when we run out of our own resources, when we experience the limitedness of our own responses and our own resource, how if you believe and you know God to be generous and abundant and far better than you could even imagine, how that opens you up to enter into a world both in prayer and in practice um, where you live with anticipation before God, and I think that draws out your prayer as well. I'm, I'm preaching today, though, as someone for whom, unlike uh, Peter Rich, prayer doesn't come easily. Uh, you know, so if you talk to Pete or you've heard his sermons, you know, um, the man gets caught up in God's presence, right? For him, hours of stillness and silence, the daily hours are amazing encounters with God, and I'm so happy for him. And Rich talks regularly about how this, you know, praying the hours and praying the Our Father regularly has transformed his world, and I'm so delighted God chooses to meet with him that way, right? And it's great to be taught by people for whom prayer has become one of the ways that they breathe and they live and their heart beats, and I'm so happy for them. This sermon's for the other folk more like me for whom prayer is just a discipline. Um, I am not a person who immediately thinks, I should pray about that. Right? My first instinctive response is, we should plan something about that. We should fix something about that. We should do something about that. Or we should just ignore that until you can't ignore it any longer. Um, and I think you need both as you learn about prayer, right? We need the voices of those for whom um, prayer comes so naturally. And as you watch them and as you listen to them, you think, oh, I want that. I want it to be that natural to me. And watching people who do it naturally, I think, helps us, right? It's, it's, it's one way of learning a sport or how to do art or to speak as you listen to the native speakers for whom this is their native language. And then for those, the rest of us, what we also need is somebody for whom it didn't come easily, um, but step by step, this is how we continue to do it. And they break it down for us. And I'm one of those break it down people because prayer doesn't come naturally. So if you're one of those people for whom prayer comes naturally, then feel free to use this next half hour or so just to pray. Um, the rest of us, the text I'd like us to think about is Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah um, has been a teacher of prayer to me because you see him pray in so many different ways 
in this book that bears his name, to set up the chapter of Nehemiah 1. Um, the people of Israel have been saved by God from Egypt, um, and as they bring, he brings them to the promised land that he's promised them, they fail. They rebel. Uh, God saves them. They rebel. They forget. Um, they seek after other gods. They do precisely the things that God told them not to do, and he judges them, and he rescues them, and he finally sends them out into exile, into the Babylonian Empire. And then 70 years later, as he promised in the book of Jeremiah and as Daniel had prayed, he sends them back to Jerusalem, to the city where he said, my presence will dwell, my glory will be made manifest. This city will be the place where people know that I am the Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord because I have brought you back and restored you to a glorious kingdom. And Nehemiah occurs after they've returned back to Jerusalem, after the temple has been mostly rebuilt. And his life story begins to pick up there. So look with me in Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halakiah. In the month of Kislev, in the 12th, 20th year, when I was at the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What's fascinating to me is that one of the way God provokes us to pray, invites us to pray, engages us in the work of prayer, is that when we decide we're all in, when mind, heart, and body, we throw ourselves into the world that God loves. Because in part, God speaks through the mind, through our minds, when it's fully informed about reality. What strikes me about Nehemiah is he's living at Susa. Susa was the capital, the winter capital of the Persian Empire. It was the strongest place in the empire. It was the most financially prosperous place in the empire. It was the most powerful place in the empire, right? It would be the equivalent of saying, when he says, I was at the citadel of Susa, not in kind of the barrios on the south side or in the suburbs nearby or even in the outer boroughs of Susa. I was at the citadel of Susa. It would be like saying if New York City and Washington, D.C. were combined into a single city and you lived at the center of the capital, right? He's at the place that has the most power, the most wealth, the most influence, the most security, and he's living in glory, right? He's living in the most beautiful palace you can imagine. He says, when I was living at the citadel of Susa, I heard that some of my countrymen from Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away, months of journeying away, had come to the capital, and I sought them out. And I asked them what was happening there on the ground. And they told me this terrible story that the walls were broken down and my heart began to break. But notice the first step toward being engaged by God with prayer is that Nehemiah has to step out of the citadel enough to know what's going on out there before he's provoked to prayer. Now, this is a challenge for most of us, I think, because, frankly, for most of us, life is busy enough, hard enough, and distracting enough that we don't need more information, particularly hard information, right? 
Like for, for most of us, frankly, managing our children, if you have small children like I do, is bad news enough on most days that what you don't really need is yet more bad news. Going to work on Monday, perhaps you're already feeling the less than 24 hours left feeling, even though we've talked about how work is a mission field here multiple times, right? But the reality is your heart begins to sink and you think, okay, there's a sermon somewhere on that website on like Genesis 1, work is a calling, it's a mission field. But it's hard enough. You have coworkers and supervisors and situations at work that just feel life-sucking. Or maybe you really like your immediate family and you like work, but it's that extended family and those neighbors of yours and the people who are going to be on the subway tomorrow, and you just, mm, right? And all of our inclinations, um, every practice that we have, even the messages that you get at school are protect yourself. Make yourself secure, make yourself comfortable, and insulate yourself from all that's bad in the world, right? That's why you get a good job, so that you have enough money that you're never actually in need. That's why you want to have nice, comfortable clothing and nice stuff so that you don't feel the wind and the chill and the water. That's why we surround ourselves with friends and communities, so that we're around nice people who encourage us and support us, and everything about our life is designed to hold it all at bay. And Nehemiah refuses to live just at the citadel of Susa. He steps out. He allows God to go, this is what's happening in the world around you. And the walls of Jerusalem have fallen. And if the walls of Jerusalem have fallen, to Nehemiah, this means three things. One of the things it means is my people are insecure. The people I love are just prey to any predator that's out there. And if they're prey, it means economically they're insecure because when you're prey to other people, you can't be secure. And if the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, that means God isn't receiving the honor and the glory that he's due. Because he promised he'd bring us back to the city where his name would dwell. And if he's some kind of potent God who can only bring us halfway, but not actually finish the walls, what kind of God is he? This is an embarrassing kind of God. Maybe God is only a halfway meeting us kind of God. And when the nations look at this, they just mock us, they mock our God, and this is intolerable. I wonder, for all of us, what it would take to let our minds be engaged sufficiently in the world around us that we're provoked to pray, that we're invited to pray, that the information isn't a distraction, a cause of distress, but actually an invitation to engage. I remember I was at the library one day, and they were doing this exhibit by a Brazilian photographer named Sebastião Salgado, um, who, who does these beautifully dramatic pictures. And in this case, it was a series of pictures from um, the Rwandan genocide. And um, I'm going to put one up, and it, it's quite graphic and disturbing. And I remember as I walked from picture to picture, all, I didn't even know how to pray. All I could say was, Lord, have mercy and forgive us for our inactivity, but I found myself drawn in prayer. And um, I remember this couple walked past me, and the young man looked at the picture and he said, unreal, unreal. He just kept saying it. And I just kept thinking, friend, I want to tap on the shoulder. That's real. Watching these pictures in this secure, nice little gallery here at the library, that's what's unreal. That's everyday reality for people in the world. How are you going to respond? 
Right? That's one of the reasons why, for us, as you read the newspaper, right, the New York Times, the Daily Mail, whatever it is that you read, if you look on websites like CNN or Fox or MSNBC, whatever you do, when you look through your Twitter stream, maybe that's God's multi-billion dollar attempt to get you real-time prayer requests. This is what's happening in the world. I remember as I was looking through Twitter over the last couple months, um, part of what struck me was Black Lives Matter and the entire um, set of issues around Ferguson and the Eric Garner um, tragedy here in New York City, I thought was part of God's provocation in my life to say, will you pray? Will you engage and not just turn away? Because it would be easier for me as an Asian American to keep flipping through. Ah, it's another people group. I can ignore that one. But if I was to take seriously God's invitation at that moment, then I would pray for the distress, pain, and frustration and anger among the black community here in the United States, right? I would wrestle as a Christian, holding all things before God, the real pain, stress, anxiety, and fear that you would feel in the law enforcement community. What would it be like to be leading a protest and needing God's presence and power so that you did it in ways which brought about justice and hope rather than despair? What would it be like to be leaders of government struggling to figure out how do you manage these different constituencies? All of those hashtags, all of that activism, every newspaper article was an invitation by God to the church. Where are you? Come before me, I am the reconciler of all things. Invite me to participate in this. When you look at the lives of friends of yours, I think of a friend of mine who um, has lived through um, some spousal abuse. How does that information not provoke me then to pray, to demand God act with justice, protect those who are powerless in the situation and bring wholeness out of places which are filled with destruction? As you walk past the homeless person, on the subway platform, right? My instinctive gut response is to look away and not make eye contact, partially because I'm embarrassed and I feel shame for them and I feel ashamed because I don't know what to do or I, don't know, I know I can't do enough. What would it be to actually think, if nothing else, that person's presence in front of you is God's invitation, will you at least engage me in prayer? God speaks and invites us to act when our minds are thoroughly informed by reality, not just hiding from it. He also speaks when our hearts are thoroughly brokenness by the brokenness of the world. What I love about Nehemiah is that he responds not just by planning, which would be my response, or by avoiding, which is my other response, but by allowing his heart to be broken. Right? The text in verses um, 3 through 4 says, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed, not just for an, a couple minutes, not just, you know, sporadically for a couple days, but I did this over in a sustained period of time. These are the emotions that we most try to avoid, aren't they? I mean, who wants distress? Who wants grief? Who wants frustration and anger in our life? In fact, much of what we do in life, right, is to try to avoid those emotions. But God actually speaks to us when we engage those emotions, when we become aware of those emotions, and their invitations by God to lift those areas up before him as an act of worship, an offering to him and say, what will you do about this, right? That's in part what all of the emotionally healthy skills that we work on in this church are about. It's designed in part to let us encounter these kinds of painful, hard emotions, whether they're buried in our own life, because our family of origin or external to us in the relationships uh, that we experience in the world, and that we lift them up in healthy ways before God and to say, what will you do with these? That's what those skills are about, to allow us to enter those most painful parts of our life and our world without being destroyed by them. 
right? It's partially why we talk about Sabbath, because as you gauge deeply in these painful realities, it's good every one day out of seven to say, and I'm going to step away. I'm going to totally step away because I cannot fix this one. Only you can fix this one. And so I'm going to stop for seven days trying to fix it and give it back to you, right? It grounds us in that reality, and Nehemiah allows his heart to break for the things that break the heart of God. I remember um, at a church I helped plant in the Chicago area before I moved to New York, um, I was doing the pastoral prayer after we took the offering. And so I did the pastoral prayer, and because it was an Asian American church, we all went out to eat lunch afterwards, because that's what you do when you're at an Asian church, you eat lunch together. And so um, I was sitting across from my friend Ina, and um, we were eating, and all of a sudden she looked at me and said, wow, your prayer bummed me out so much. I hate it when you pray at church. And I, I said, what do you mean? And she said, actually, it was a Super Bowl Sunday. That She goes, you know, we're, like, I came to church depressed, discouraged, and I got lifted up by the musical worship. I was feeling close to the Lord, and then you got up and started praying, like, Lord, during this hour and a half of worship, 1,500 children will die of hunger. Nine people will commit suicide. Several hundred people will contract HIV, AIDS. She's like, you're bumming me out. Then you're like, and then we know during the Super Bowl parties, we'll spend a couple hundred billion dollars on chips, salsa, and drinks while people starve to death. She goes, well, I don't need that on Sunday. Why do you destroy my worship buzz every time you get up there? And... Um, I remember, I think what I ended up saying to her was, you know, um, you know, as I sing songs about you're worthy and you're glorious and powerful and mighty and loving, if I can't at the same time acknowledge and people are dying from preventable causes around me every day, even while I sing that, then Karl Marx was right. Religion is just the opiate of the masses, right? It's designed to dull me from reality rather than engage me with reality. But uh, to, to be faithful, to be honest, to have integrity. If I'm going to sing about God's love, then I need to remind myself about where the world is broken and go, I know these are both true, and I'm going to still assert as an act of faith and trust that this is true about God, even while I mourn the reality of what's going on, because for many of us, that's the only way we're going to cope. Because if God can, if I can acknowledge both, then I can take God all of the stresses and strains in my marriage and my relationships, and he's not going to be disturbed by them, right? I can take the brokenness in my propensity to sin, and he's not like, <gasps> this is all about my love and my happiness, right? I can go and look at the world in the face and say, I believe there's good news. If, if I can't do both, then I have nothing to offer. And what I've been convinced about is God uses that strong emotional reaction to something, anger at injustice, despair that it never changes, grief that people are being broken, and God uses all those emotions, and rather than shying away from it or flinching, God invites us to say, press in. Push right in there because I know, and I see, and I feel it. I'm going to use that to invite you to pray. There's nothing to be afraid of because I am here with you. Right? How does God provoke us to pray? It's by informing our minds. It's by moving our hearts. And then God, I think, speaks to our soul's rejection of the status quo. Right? When we pray, it's an act of rebellion against the systems and structures in the world that oppress and destroy people, whether in the bad dynamics of a family relationship or in the macro realities that keep people in poverty. When we pray, we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We reject that this is going to be with us always. We press on and long for kingdom come when God's reign and rule will be established. We believe it will happen. Um, 
Nehemiah saw that the, or heard that the walls of Jerusalem were disarray, and he was angered and frustrated and broken by that. And so what do you do when you're confronted by the reality of a broken world? You have to turn to God. You have to pray. And that's really where Nehemiah's prayer goes. It's not just that um, we start to pray when we decide we're all in, mind, heart, and soul. It's when you actually know the God you pray to. And look at the prayer that Nehemiah prays in verses um, 5 through 11. The first paragraph really is about God, Nehemiah knowing God's attributes, his power, love, and holiness. Listen to him. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my ancestral family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed your commands, decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. This man knows how powerful God is, how loving God is, and how holy God is, right? And all of those remind him to pray. You're the kind of God who's powerful enough to pray to, loving enough to act, and who's aware enough of my sin that I need to acknowledge it before you. And so Nehemiah prays. The next paragraph talks about he knows God's character. You're faithful to what, who you are. You're faithful to what you said you would do, and so I can pray to you. Remember the instructions that you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You did what you said you would do when you sent us into exile. I trust you will do what you said you will do, which is bring us back and make this the place where you dwell again. Right? And then he prays in that last paragraph, um, he knows God's purposes because God is jealous for his own glory. So look how Nehemiah phrases um, his request. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Um, God is jealous for his own glory. So these are your people, and it's your promises and your city, so you should do something as your people beg you to do it, right? Because there's power in aligning yourself. God, you already want to do this. Here's why it's critical, right? Because if you know that God is loving and powerful and holy, then you have confidence to actually say, if you're these things, then that broken family member who's dying in the situation they're at, Lord, you love them. And you have the power to save them, so will you do something? Right? As you see that non-Christian friend that you've been trying to share your faith with and you think, I think they're so closed, you actually know something about God's character and he said in scripture, I desire that none perish and everybody have eternal life. So, Lord, if you want to see this happen, then do something about it. When you look at the ways that our society struggles under racism and classism and sexism, you can think, Lord, as you created the world, you intended people to live in harmony with each other, to dignify one another so that you would be glorified and you've brought us into a new community to demonstrate that. Change the church, Lord, so we're the kind of people that you want us to be, right? Because when you know what God is like, it gives you confidence. But who would pray to an impotent God who just didn't care? If you know something about God's character, then you can pray to him because you wouldn't pray to a capricious, erratic God. You're like, I have no idea if he's going to do it or not. But you go, you said you wanted to do this, so do it, Lord, right? 
You pray when you know something about God's purposes because why would you pray if you thought, well, he's loving and caring and he's really all-powerful, but I don't know if he wants to do this or not. I mean, if you don't know these things, then you're left with something like, well, we'll fast until God's so guilty that we're hungry that he chooses to act, which isn't prayer, right? That's magic, and it's manipulative, and it's demeaning to God and to us, right? Or it starts to suggest if I'm holy enough, God will be compelled to act because I'm such a nice person. Like he owes us something. Or if enough of us pray, it's like a celestial jackpot machine. And if we put in enough prayer quarters, eventually, bam, we'll pull it and prayer resources will spill around us. But it's not that at all. When you know God and you go, he loves us and he cares about us and he desires to act and his entire goal is to redeem humanity for himself, then all of a sudden prayer bursts out of you, right? And you can pray like Nehemiah does at the prayer Give your servant favor today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, right? Prayer shoots out of you all of a sudden because you are so compelled by who God is. Your heart launches into space in his presence. You're like, look, I want this, but I want this because I know you want this, Lord. I care about this because I know you care about this. I'm praying this because you instructed me to pray this. The more we know who God is, the more we find ourselves swept up, invited in, excited about prayer. Um, what I love about Nehemiah is his prayer gets really demanding at that moment, right? Do this! And it's not do this because Nehemiah just has, you know, Ugh, I'm not going to stop. I'm demanding. It's not just because he's bold. He knows his God. And he goes, look, you want to do this, so let's go do this, God. Let's do this together. Um, and then he prays this funny thing, right? Give your servant favor in the eyes of this man. And for Nehemiah, um, God begins a new thing with this unique situation and placement. Um, because what happens next is Nehemiah goes, uh, I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, this is an odd thing to say. Um, because you just think Nehemiah's going, you know, I, I was a fantastic waiter. And you think, why is this relevant? But what's interesting about you, Nehemiah, is if you were the cupbearer to the king, you were the person in charge of all of his food. If you're the cupbearer to the king, you're the person the king trusts above everybody else in the kingdom to ensure that he doesn't get poisoned. Which means long before we were concerned about where our food was sourced, what farm it grew on, Nehemiah was paying attention to that because he had to ensure from the time that grape was harvested to the time the wine touched the king's lips, it was all going to be safe. In fact, for the cupbearer was also often the wine taster and food taster, so you were putting your own life at risk first. Before the king would drink it, you would drink a little to ensure that it wasn't poison. Before the king ate it, you would eat it to ensure that it was good and wouldn't make him sick. When the king trusts you to save his own life, when he's confident enough that you're smart enough, um, thorough enough, and responsible enough, to handle the entire supply chain to ensure his safety, you're a lot more than a waiter to the king. In fact, you are probably one of the king's most trusted confidants, a, king that, a person the king trusts implicitly with anything. In many cases in the Persian Empire, the cupbearer to the king was the person who had actually more authority and more influence than the prime minister did. Because the prime minister, you never knew what he was doing, 
but the cupbearer, you knew what they were doing on a daily basis because if you were, you were alive because they were being faithful. So when Nehemiah says, I was the cupbearer to the king, what Nehemiah is essentially saying, I am the second most powerful person in this empire. I have more influence, responsibility, and authority than almost anybody can imagine. And when I pray this prayer, Lord, give me favor in the eyes of this man, you know Nehemiah is about to do something that um, takes advantage of that influence, power, um, and proximity to the king so that something different will happen. It, It makes me wonder, as you think about where you are, why did God put you in the place that he did? Because where you are may be one of God's invitations to get you to pray. You're in the family you're in because God placed you there for a reason. How is he inviting you to pray? When you wake up tomorrow morning, you're in a specific building, in a specific neighborhood. Why did God put you there rather than somewhere else? It's an invitation to pray for your neighbors and for your community. When you go to work on Monday morning, why these coworkers? Right? Why that supervisor? Why this set of problems? Could it be that God placed you there specifically so that you were given an opportunity to respond in prayer to say, I don't know why these people, but these are the people you've put next to me, Lord, so would you act? Right? If you aren't working tomorrow, or if you don't have a family around you, how is God inviting you in that specific situation to pray and make his kingdom, to invite his kingdom to come and that his will would be done, right? None of this is an accident. Our entire lives have been designed by God to provoke, to invite us to pray, to declare that he is the good Lord who intends to act in those places. I think of a group of students at your college, not far away from here. Um, A student from your college came to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the organization I worked with, and said, As far as we can tell, there's no vibrant Christian uh, witness on this campus. We think something needs to happen here. And so three of the student leaders came for training a few weeks ago. And what they committed together was, we are going to meet every week from now to the end of the semester. We're going to invite as many people as we can find so that they come to know Jesus. We're going to look for any Christian who might be here. And we're going to show up in that room. It may just be the three of us in an empty room every week, but we are not here by accident. We are not here because some admissions committee brought us here. We are here because God brought us here. And the three of us are the nucleus of something that God intends to do on this campus. So every week, we are going to pray that God uses us to create a movement of prayer and witness and worship on this campus until he takes us out of here. How about for you? Where are you? In the network of relationships that he's put you in, how is he inviting you to engage and to respond and to pray? It strikes me this is an important question because God inevitably seems to answer our prayer requests with an invitation to respond. So in Luke 10, Jesus is looking at a whole bunch of people who know nothing about the kingdom of God, and he tells the disciples, look, the harvest fields, they're they're so ready for harvest right now. They are so ready. So pray to the Lord, right, that he would prepare workers for the harvest field. And as soon as he finishes saying that, right, so let's pray that God is going to send people the very next words out of his mouth. So go, be the answer to the prayer that you just prayed, which is the way that our prayers have integrity, right? It's not just, Lord, help that person over there. I'm so glad I prayed. Now I can walk away, 
But instead, God invites us to be all in, right? I see the situation there, and mentally, I cannot accept this is what God wants. Emotionally, I'm letting my heart break because this breaks the heart of God, and it enrages me and depresses me. I'm not going to flinch. I'm not going to despair, but I'm going to press in. I'm going to allow my heart to break until I mourn, until I grieve, until I anger, and then I'm going to remember who God is, the great and loving God who desires to redeem each person and all of his creation. And then I'm going to ask, why am I here right now? And each one of those things is an invitation to pray, right? It's the broken marriage in the apartment next to you or in the family uh, that you'll see during the next holiday that God says, press in. Know that reality is true, and I desire to do something about it. And I put you there for a reason. It really is that coworker that's just a drag, that's a drain on you, that maybe you are the redemptive point through which God will make his presence known. So rather than just praying about them, we pray for them. It's the encounters on the streets and in the subways um, and through the newspapers and the magazines and the websites and the Twitter streams that we all are part of that God seems to be saying, look, I've organized billion-dollar corporations on the New York Stock Exchange just so that you would know this is happening. What else do I need to do to invite you to pray? The beautiful thing, of course, is that um, it's not about us in the end, is it? God invites us to pray, God empowers us to pray, and then God meets us when we pray. And it's, we do it with God, for God and through God, every step of the way. And that's why we're going to conclude the service with communion. Communion, uh, for us as a church, is a reminder of many things, right? It's a reminder that God did not flinch when he saw the brokenness of the world, but entered fully into its pain, and then died on the cross in our place and on our behalf, and then rose again to demonstrate to us that death shall have no dominion. The destructive power of the world isn't all that, um, isn't all that there is to say. And then he created this community, the church, that becomes aware of its own brokenness and pain, embraces what Christ has accomplished for us, and then allows the new creation to be at work within us so that as a new community, we reach out to be his hands and feet in a broken world, to be restored by the work that he's doing within us. So let me invite uh, the worship team to begin to come back up. Um, let me invite Pete to come and lead us in communion and let me pray for us as we make this transition. Let me invite you all to stand, all right? All right, so we're going to have uh, communion. Now, communion, like any... Uh, spiritual discipline or practice, the, the goal of communion is that each one of us will open up our hearts and let Jesus in. You know, Jesus says, remember I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come into him and he with me. So the reason we pray, I'll read the Bible or worship or listen to sermons is so we can open up our hearts more fully and let Jesus in fully into our lives. So communion is... Um, you know, we're going to come to the table, and this is a table of, of free grace. And you can just take the bread, dip it in the cup, and go back to your seat and get nothing out of it. But it's meant to be an opportunity for you and for me to eat and drink of Jesus. And in fact, he talked about it in John 6 as, as um, I'm the living bread that come down from heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you, know, you will not remain in me. So, so the goal is to have Jesus in us and us be in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is one means we come to God in faith. We allow that to happen.
So what's going to happen now is the ushers are going to follow the instructions of the ushers, okay, wherever they are. And uh, if you want to get yourselves in place, there's going to be just, there's tables around the room and upstairs uh, in the balcony. And you're going to take the bread and you're going to dip it in the cup and you're going to bring it back to your seat and hold on to it as we worship. Now, this is a free table event. In other words, uh, we receive a gift from God. And you come to this table only in the name of Jesus. We don't come in our own name, our own performance, our own good works. We come in the perfect work of Jesus who died and rose again. We remember him who died on that cross and shed his blood. So anybody can come to that table who comes by faith. That's the miracle of Christianity. If you're not a Christian, you want to become a Christian right now and receive Jesus and let him fill your life right now for forgiveness and, and, and a new birth. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship, and you'll come get your elements, and then I'll give you some instructions when that, that's all done. All right, so let's pray and bow our heads. And so we invite you, Lord, to set apart these elements which are really, in a sense, your presence. Uh, bless the cup and the, and, the, and the wine and the elements there. And set apart us to, to receive you, to let you have access into the depths of our being, to areas that we maybe shut you out. And may each of us, Lord, have an encounter with you around this table.
Rose here. I want to find the prayer teams to come on forward to your left. Just one quick announcement. Tax, or, or I guess there's a computer downstairs for those looking for uh, to access the computer. Your tax, you have to do for 2014. Go to show. Blessed we pray as you leave this place. 